unmute in five seconds. Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, we're here to answer questions about Buddhist meditation practice and the application of mindfulness in daily life. So if you have questions about your practice or about your life, feel free to post them in the chat. We'll spend the first 15 minutes gathering the questions and once you've answered once you've asked your question, you can spend the 15 minutes cultivating mindfulness to create clarity in the mind, just to be present with your experiences so that you're in a good state of mind for the rest of the session. And I'll be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin to answer questions.
All right, 15 minutes is up. From here on, we will begin to ask and answer the questions. We'd ask that chat be reserved for only asking questions, so you can continue to ask questions in the chat, but anything else will just be removed. If you've asked your question, just sit back, close your eyes, stay mindful, and listen. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. If we're practicing in very cold weather, would you recommend practicing in thick socks or shoes? I suppose it depends how cold. If it's cold to the point of causing problems for your feet, that's one thing. But if it's cold in terms of just creating the feeling of being cold on the foot, I would say it's still reasonable to practice barefoot. It's not that big of a deal. The problems with um, thick socks and shoes, it's it's not as direct an experience. It's harder to uh, really isolate the movement experience in the foot. So it's preferable to practice barefoot if possible. How can someone prepare for the foundation course? I am almost finishing up my at-home course with a decent amount of dedication and concentration, but I feel like I am way behind in my practice as I expected to be at this stage. What are the things a student can lack in achieving strong will and calmness? Well, based on this, the, the issues that you have are expectations, which are going to hold you back in your practice. As long as you have expectations about what you should be, then you're not focusing on what you are. You're not focusing on the actual experiences. On the other hand, the fact that you're able to see that your experiences are not the way you want is beneficial. It's helping you to slowly realize that you're not in control. You're not able to force yourself to be the way you think you should be. And that's important because the goal, of course, is to let go. So you see how your clinging is causing you stress and suffering. Um, the other problem seems to be a focus on concentration, calmness, even strong will. None of these things are the focus of our practice, the focus being mindfulness. So it's a skill that you develop, and that's the skill you should be focused on. If you want to feel calm or think you should feel calm, you have to note that. That's just a clinging, that's kind of delusion, the idea that somehow that is the goal. The goal is to be mindful, to face things and to see them clearly, to not be um, swayed by them to not suffer from our experiences. But that being said, uh, the at-home course is really just about learning the basics of the practice. It's, it's pre-foundation, so the foundation course is where you will really gain the skill of being mindful. There really is no, no prerequisite. Uh, if someone didn't have the time to do the at-home course, they could start with the foundation course. It would just be harder. So we do the at-home course. It's made the foundation course a lot easier for people because they're already quite prepared, at least in terms of understanding how to practice and their appreciation of the practice. Establishing that appreciation of the practice over many weeks is very valuable 
because you waste a lot of time doing that in the beginning of the adult, of the foundation course. Otherwise, you have precious few days to stay at the center, and so every day counts. And if you're spending days wrestling with whether you actually want to be there or whether you actually understand what you're doing, you're just wasting a lot of time. Found the uh, the at home course allows you to gain that appreciation and understanding and really start the training in earnest when you arrive the first day you arrive for the foundation course. So I wouldn't be too concerned about that. Is it possible to advance on the path to any significant extent by spending 20 to 30 minutes each day meditating? Or do you sooner or later have to increase the time spent meditating each day? Well, advancement's pretty um, pretty general. I don't, know what's, I don't know what's the right word. It's ad, advancement can be uh, can mean that someday in you know, some some lifetime in the future you become enlightened. So it depends what you really mean by advancement, and and that's true because even just a moment of mindfulness is very valuable. Now, it may not lead to enlightenment in this life, but it can change the direction of your life. It can set you up with some positive inclinations. The key is not how many minutes you do. The key is how many moments you're mindful throughout the day. So we encourage people to be mindful outside of practice. I assume you might just be doing sitting meditation, so try and do walking as well to try and get that proficiency in action when you're doing something, not just when you're sitting still with your eyes closed. And try and do some in the morning and some in the evening. That's if you really want good progress in this life. And furthermore, it's beyond just the moments and the actual time you put into the practice, having a teacher and having a guide and having a, a program to follow is a huge support. So rather than talk about whether one can or cannot, like it's some kind of dichotomy, the question is how fast do you expect results or and and the depth of the results you expect because there are going to be other things of course that are will impede your practice other things you do during the day and, and in your life so you're going to be one step forward one step back or or, or so on that, that, that's not quite a good analogy because one step forward is is unrelated to the one step backwards and it becomes habitual, and over time, those single step forward, even if there is a single step back or even two steps back, that single step forward eventually gains uh, power and significance if you uh, do, as you say, 20, 30 minutes a day, if you're actually doing, cultivating mindfulness. It, uh, it does lead somewhere. It's just a matter of how quickly. And there's, as I said, many factors which will increase the speed and the depth of the, of the advancement. How do I stay in a meditative state during a meeting with someone? Should I note seeing, hearing, etc. during the conversation? So the idea of a meditative state is pretty misleading usually. I mean, you might argue that there is such a thing as a meditative state in our tradition, but it doesn't 
it, it's not what you think of as a meditative state. Don't try and stay in a meditative state. That's not what we're on. That's not what we're about. Try and focus on the moments. Because the meditative state, why I say there could be one, is because it would just mean every moment being present with that moment. It wouldn't feel like you were in any altered state. If you feel like you're in an altered state, that's not mindfulness. That's just some tranquility or concentration state. And with mindfulness, you should note that experience as well. So think of that as kind of a, a misleading, the idea of a meditative state. As, but the question is still uh, clear. The, how, do, how do you stay um, in a good frame of mind during a meeting? Because there's going to be moments where you are reacting with stress and worry and maybe fear and maybe frustration and desire and greed and that sort of lots of different things boredom even during long meetings um, now of course all those things are valid objects and and of course yes you can note whatever it is that you experience outside of formal practice we recommend focusing on the four postures of the body the six senses as you say seeing hearing and the hindrances are another good object. But um, an important um, response here, a part of the response, has got to be, how, how do you stay mindful during such a situation? You be skilled at mindfulness. So the answer really is to have trained in mindfulness. The only way to actually do it well, you know, engage in the world well, is to train. Just like if the question was, how do I be good? How, how, how do I win a tennis match? You be skilled in tennis, and you 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 be trained in in practicing in playing tennis. And that requires many 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 hours of training. And the same goes with, of course, mindfulness. If you want to live well be trained if you want to die well, be ready for death. My spouse is soon going to leave me. The thought of living mostly in solitude is very frightening. I think this is going to be a hindrance. Do you have any advice? So this is a big part of the... Um, problem or what leads to problems in our perspective on suffering and on our in life generally is the assigning of uh, qualities to experiences that aren't a part of the, the experience thoughts are not frightening thoughts ha haven't the ability to have the quality it's not possible for a thought to have the quality of being frightening. This kind of wording, this kind of um, sentence, this kind of statement is a product of, of directly of misunderstanding. There's no way you could interpret that to be clear understanding. Thoughts don't have the power to be frightening. The, the, a better perspective, something that will help you get better at being mindful, is to appreciate that the thought arises and you react out of fear because the thought of living mostly in solitude could be a pleasant thought for someone say a monk who's 
living in the forest and is tired of being around people. So the thought is not frightening, and that's important. It's important because it's a, you, you, are, you are mistaken and you are misrepresenting experience naturally. I mean, reasonably, because that's the way we. This is the way we talk. We say uh, people make us angry. We say pain is bad. Um, we say food is is delicious or that sort of thing. And none of these things is really true. People don't make us angry. We react with anger, but that's on us. There's nothing directly inherent in the people that are causing, the people are not causing us problems, causing us the anger. Pain is not bad, pain is just an experience. Thoughts are scary, thoughts are not scary. Thoughts are just thoughts. So that realignment of the uh, 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 clarity of understanding the difference between the thought and the fear will help you to recognize it. Without that, you take the thoughts as being the problem. And then the answer is, don't think. Don't have those thoughts. Distract yourself from the thoughts. Have different thoughts. Tell yourself, it's going to be okay, and you know, give yourself thoughts that are not scary. And that is not the way out of suffering. That doesn't free you from the potential to be afraid of those thoughts when they come back. If anything, it just makes you more averse to them and more susceptible to their power over you. You you augment or reinforce their badness, their their the aversion towards them. If you instead face the thoughts and come to see the thoughts just as thoughts, as well as seeing the fear as just fear, then you free yourself from the power of both. Thoughts don't make you afraid, but even when the fear does arise, you have a familiarity with the fear to the extent that the fear doesn't scare you either. Right? The thought of living mostly in solitude is very frightening. Well, if you're afraid of the thought, so what? Where's the problem? The only problem is that you think there's a problem. And the more you think there's a problem, the more afraid you're going to be, and fear can have actual health detriment. It can, it can have an impact on your physical health and, of course, your mental health, creating stress and suffering, tormenting you, all because you perceive it as a problem. If you see fear as fear, if you see thoughts as thoughts, you break that chain and you free yourself from their power. That's my advice. I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. That might be a good place to start. You could try doing our at-home course. When I note, I see that ill will, sensory desire, and restlessness eventually fades away. However, noting does not help with sloth and torpor. Why? Should I practice yoga breathing before meditation for energy? Um, maybe, maybe that will help you in the short term, but no, not in the long term. It's not really the solution. The solution is to live a better life to live a life, find a simple life where you can um, be free from the stress and the taxation that comes from interacting with the world. Uh, or you know, in the short term, honestly, the real solution is to just be put up with it. Now, to be clear, mindfulness doesn't uh, stop 
things like ill will, sensually desire, and restlessness. It helps you see them more clearly. And so in the long term, they will get better. Sloth and torpor is only the mental aspect of the fatigue. Your, your body is also just going to shut down. And so it's not meant to make that fatigue go away. It's meant to help you perceive it clearly and not cultivate the, the sloth, the laziness, the, the sluggishness of mind. So you're still going to fall asleep if you're tired, and that can often happen during meditation. And the only way to really be free from that is, again, to live a better, live a better life. You'll find that during an intensive meditation course, generally people come the first few days, they struggle with this. But it's a short-term struggle. When you're living in a meditation center, you'll be able to see that, that the possibility there that sloth and torpor and the physical fatigue um, eventually fade away and you gain a lot better energy. It's something that comes from daily practice as well. Over time, if you do daily practice to an extent, it will start to change your life, you're being mindful in daily life. And you can, to some extent, balance that out. It's still just a bit of a beginner problem. And if you're doing daily practice, you should still see some improvement there. But again, be able to separate the mental kind of sluggishness of mind and the, the physical, even the brain, getting tired. Is ordination always the most conducive option to practice the teachings? So ordination is a is an external state, right? It has nothing to do with the actual practice. Um, so it, it it really doesn't technically have anything to do with the practice of the teachings, and so it's it's always going to depend on the circumstances. Practically speaking, it usually is the better option. But the answer to your question is no, it's not always the better option because it doesn't have anything to do with the practice. And it's possible to ordain and, and be taken away from the practice as a result of ordaining. That's possible. So yeah, no, not always. When focusing on the stomach during meditation, Sometimes I wonder what to focus on. When I focus on the muscles and the movements, in doing this, sometimes I skip a breath. Do you have any advice on how to handle this? Yeah, I don't know. It sounds like you're not actually focusing on the actual experience because each breath is is the, the tension and the relaxing. If you need, in the beginning, you can put your hand on your stomach to sort of align your perception more with the actual experience. Because, yeah, otherwise in the beginning, it's common to be kind of 
forcefully tensing the stomach that has no relationship with the actual movement, the actual breathing uh, process. But um, one thing you have to note about any attempt to watch the stomach rising and falling is it's a lot harder than it sounds. It seems banal, it seems easy, and it's kind of an interesting combination of the banality of it, the simplicity of it, coupled with the reality, which is that it's really hard, that turns people off of the stomach and makes them say that it's just not for them. It's not a practice that's for them. But that's the whole point, really. First of all, that it's banal, so which means it's not something that you're you're predisposed to like or dislike, and it'll allow you to see some of your more subtle reactions, especially because, on the other hand, it's hard. The stomach is not stable. It's not satisfying. It's not controllable. It's unpredictable. And so you struggling with it is not a bad thing on the face of it. Just a matter of straightening out your mind to get to the point where you can focus on something so simple, right? And it could be so simple just to watch your stomach rising and falling. Nope. The mind and the body do not cooperate. Make it really hard. So the challenge, it's a challenge. Mindfulness practice is meant to be a challenge. That's something you have to know from the beginning and you have to keep in mind throughout the course. It will never be something, it should never be something that is uh, easy, or uh, comfortable, comfortable in the sense it should make you uncomfortable, not unpleasant necessarily, but it should force you to reevaluate your your perception of things. It should take you out of your comfort zone, challenge you. I understand the reason for noting but sometimes it feels artificial due to using words as language is a construct, and I feel aversion in noting it. I wonder if not noting and just being aware is more natural. Is this attachment to samatha practice, where there are no words? Will noting using words one day feel natural? Should I have faith in this to overcome all my doubts? Meditation of all kinds is artificial. It's an artifice. It's artificial, and that's by by that's on purpose, because it's a training. It's about changing, changing your natural state. Your natural state. There's nothing special about it. Your natural state, unless you're an arahant, is bad, is wrong, is horrible, ugly. Most people's natural state. I mean, pretty much everybody's natural state is ugly, terrible. So going back to what's natural, it's a, it, that's mis, misguided. I mean, it's, it's common. Say it feels unnatural. It's meant to feel unnatural. It's meant to challenge you. It's meant to change the way you perceive things. That's the whole point. Samatha meditation is far better known for using words. Just this is kind of a bit of a tangent, but you did bring it up, so let's clear that up before we get into the, the details of this. That as far as using words go, Samatha meditation is famous for using all sorts of words. Like in Thailand, everyone, most most people practice Buddho, Buddho, just mindfulness of the Buddha, which is a Samatha practice, calming the mind, 
other meditations they'll say when the breath comes in in one out one in two out two in the ancient meditation manuals they say focus on the earth and say to yourself earth 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 also a samatha meditation when you look at a color white and you say white 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 it's a mantra mantra meditation it's very ancient the hindus did it om is a mantra so a being artificial is not a bad thing because we're, it's like if you're stuck in the mud if an elephant is stuck in the mud you need to use a rope to get the elephant out of the mud it can't get out by itself it's not natural you need something unnatural to help it get out that rope is the mindfulness practice b the actual use of words is ancient and common to all types of meditation i would say if you're not using words it's hard really to appreciate in what sense you're actually meditating it's not very concrete even though you can say you can claim oh i'm being aware oh i'm being mindful anyone can say such things there's nothing concrete about what you're doing to say that it's different from ordinary awareness of things I don't know, so what else was I going to say? Uh, language is a construct. Language is a construct, but certain words refer to realities. And that's where the choice of words becomes important, because saying buddho, buddho is not mindfulness. It's not vipassana practice. Why? Because buddha is not something that is not a part of experience. When you say seeing, seeing, well, seeing is an experience, so that's vipassana, that's real. Which words you choose are important because the words themselves are constructs, but the things they refer to may be constructs and may be realities. Buddha is a construct, seeing is a reality. That's where the difference lies. Not in whether you use a word or not use a word. It's about which words you use and whether your words bring you closer to the actual experience. Uh, the other thing I was going to talk about was the aversion just because you feel aversion towards something and this is trying to be unbiased trying to just point out the problems in your argument without um, being biased in favor of the noting i mean i guess my bias is probably already showing but i'm trying to be objective here with some arguments so an objective statement is that just because you feel aversion towards something does not mean that thing is wrong and so that's not a valid argument either and in this practice, of course, that doesn't escape mindfulness. You should note disliking, disliking. That's important. It's important to see that you dislike something because there is not only is it um, not a good reason to stop doing the thing, it's always wrong. When you are averse to something, you can't blame that thing. You can't say that thing is wrong. The anger, the aversion before anything else, no matter what it is, good or bad, whether the thing that you're angry about is good or bad, the anger, the aversion is wrong. And so there's a simple way to deal with that. You would just say to yourself, disliking, disliking. It's quite simple. It's meant to show you that sort of thing about yourself, that you react with aversion. And so it's doing its job. You're seeing that. You're going to see what the problem with aversion is. And you're going to challenge yourself to let go of the aversion instead of trying to change so that you're doing something that you like and so that you're only able to deal with things that you like. Mindfulness allows you to be 
free from that sort of partiality, allows you to experience, allows you to be content no matter what you experience. Um, in the last sentence, having faith is not important, uh, but overcoming doubts is not also something you should try to do. You should try to note the doubt even. Just say doubting, doubting. Don't worry about overcoming them. Just note them and uh, they'll disappear because they, doubts are also things that arise and cease in moments. And when you note them, they go away. Problem solved. If I have a lot of life challenges, such as trauma, that I didn't consciously choose, from the perspective of karma, what is your suggestion on what is the attitude around karma? Well, karma is action. So life challenges, trauma, probably caused by other people's actions. So that's a part of it. That's not on you. But... Trauma is also caused by the repeated reactions to experience. So you can experience something and, and have and have a severe fear, anger, sadness, a severe negative reaction to it that you then in reinforce over the years until it becomes like PTSD. Uh, but that's simply because of your lack of mindfulness. And each moment that you reinforce it is a karma in and of itself. So that's a part of it. The best attitude around karma is appreciating what your actions right now may cause for your future. Rather than worry about what happened in the past that may be causing your present. It's not really as valuable. It's useful as a lesson to remind yourself, oh, I shouldn't do that again. But that's not nearly as valuable as appreciating your present moment and appreciating the importance of being careful conscientious and mindful in the present moment. Could you give any specific advice about the best way of meditating when you frequently wake up in the middle of the night and can't get back to sleep, but your mind is foggy? I don't know if you read our booklet uh, or if you've done our at-home course, but those might be two places to start so that you'd have a better pre better understanding of the answer that I would give. But um, if you have done those things, then you would just note feeling, feeling if the mind is foggy. You could even say foggy, foggy. And then just watch the stomach rising and falling. Don't worry about sleep. The worst thing you can do is worry about how much sleep you're getting or not getting. This idea of how many hours you need is so misleading. It's not only misleading, it's harmful because it leads to stress when you don't get enough sleep. And it leads people to take sleeping pills to ensure that they get enough sleep, which is kind of ridiculous because there's a much better way, and that's to throw this idea of how many hours you need and focus much more on the quality of your mind, both when awake or asleep. It's perfectly clear to anyone who's done intensive meditation practice that. It depends very much on the state of mind, how much mind, how much sleep you need. And if you practice mindfulness daily throughout the day, you need far less sleep than someone who is taxing their mind through stress and anger and greed and, and a delusion. So throw it out the window. Focus on being mindful. And you'll see sleep is very simple. Sleep is very easy. You get enough sleep. The more mindful you are, the better you are at getting enough sleep.
truth to people can make them angry or defensive, and they suffer because of it. If I agree with them, then I am lying to them, and they will keep suffering. Do you have advice on dealing with delusions? Try and keep quiet, I think. it's You have to have the presence of mind to not agree with people when they're saying the wrong thing, but also not to, um, without reason, tell them something that's going to upset them. Mostly it comes down to being mindful. It's very hard to know what is the right thing to say or not say. And it's kind of mislead, misguided because it's not, about what you say it's about the quality of your mind that's going to determine what you say and determine how you say it and when you say it what your quality of mind is when you say it something you say might cause someone to get angry as a result but that's on them if you if you intended for someone to be hurt by what you say that's on you but if someone gets angry at what you say that's on them and really isn't your problem you just have to worry about your quality of mind. Are you coming from a good place? Is your mind pure? Is your mind mindful? And then you'll know what to say and what not to say. My short-term memory is really bad. I have difficult memorizing even small sentences, and I have mind fog all the time. How can I solve this? Mindfulness helps probably to some extent. There's other causes. I mean, it can be physical or it can be the brain can be, it can play a part in preventing you from remembering things, but meditation should help clear it up. Uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't worry too much about it. Like it, it may deter, may change your decisions on how you live your life. And so you have to reevaluate your life choices, which you're going to do based on your. Uh, limitations, but those are not limitations related to meditation practice. They're not something that makes you a bad person, and that's really the most thing you should. The biggest thing to worry about: Are you a bad person? Are you engaged in unwholesome thoughts? Are you trying to remember things that are unwholesome or something like that? I don't know. Not not really have anything to do with memory usually at all. It's about your how you how you deal with it. Does it stress you out? Do you dislike it? Those are much more important. I practice anapana and vipassana. However, I find that my mind wanders much more during vipassana than anapana, even though both involve observing sensations. How should I work on focusing better? It doesn't sound like you practice our tradition, so I would just say, if you want my advice, then it's always going to be that, well, not that you practice our tradition, but it would be, I can only give advice to people practicing in our tradition. So you would have to give up anapana, you would have to be practicing satipatthana vipassana according to the booklet that we have on our website. And I would recommend to take the at-home course that we offer, practicing it on your own, walking and sitting every day, walking first and sitting twice a day, once in the morning, then in the evening. And we'll meet once a week and I can guide you through. The other thing I would say, I guess, is that we're not so concerned with focus. We're much more concerned with mindfulness, which is momentary. So it's okay to be distracted as long as when you realize you're distracted after it's gone full circle and you realize, oh, I was distracted, 
that you apply the practice at that moment. And it's more of a give and take where you you acknowledge that you're you have bad habits in the mind and you just make the most of it and you you give and take is probably not the right word, but it's kind of like a dance or like a boxing match. In a boxing match, you can't just keep punching. You have to block too. So wait for the opportunity and then strike. Rather than trying to be quote-unquote focused all the time, that's just delusion because it's based on the idea that you're in control, which you're not. After a recent bereavement, I found it impossible to sit in meditation, breath and body scan. Does this mean that meditation requires a somewhat stable state of mind? Again, I don't know if this is the same person, but it sounds like they're practicing this very similar type of meditation that's not our practice. So my answer is probably going to incorporate some of that, but let's take it out, take that part out and let's say after a recent bereavement, it's impossible to sit in meditation. So I'm assuming kind of tongue-in-cheek that you're not saying it's impossible to sit, that you're still able to cross your legs and you're still able to sit. You're probably talking about something mental, uh, that your mind is unstable because of the bereavement, right, of course. So it has nothing to do with physical because you're probably very prone to great sadness, um, could be even worry. Uh, about the future, but usually it's sadness because of bereavement. Um, certain meditations do require a somewhat stable state of mind. Mindfulness isn't really one of those, though the kind of things that make mindfulness meditation impossible are not bereavement, but they are um, precepts. If you're killing, stealing, cheating, lying, taking drugs and alcohol, those are what gets in the way of mindfulness practice. Bereavement, no. Bereavement is a uh, name for experiences related to memories and perceptions. So the memory is of the person, let's say it's a person that you lost, and the perception is of as a bad thing. And the the resultant sadness and and anger even, you know, why why does this happen to me? That sort of thing. Depression even. But all of those things are valid objects of mindfulness. The thoughts you can note, the perceptions you can note, the um, disliking you can note, the sadness you can note. So I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. It sounds like you're doing a different tradition entirely, but if you're interested, uh, try reading our booklet, try doing the at-home course, and absolutely not. That should never get in the way of your practice. It might make you reevaluate your understanding of what it means to practice meditation. Because usually people are surprised by the nature of mindfulness practice as being quite different from other types of meditation. What advice would you give to someone from India who wishes to pursue the life of a bhikkhuni in the Theravada tradition? Well kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I would say note the wishing, note the wanting. But it has nothing really to do with you being female or in India or being a bhikkhuni at all. It's 
of course you should note the wishing and the wanting i guess okay it does have something to do with wishing to become a monastic because monasticism is a tricky thing for many people it's near impossible it's unthinkable that they should ever be able to just because of their situation but um for most people it's tricky regardless tricky to actually get to the point where you're able to ordain and you have to be able to dance around those issues and to get it to the point where you're in a position where you're better able to or or more where it's more feasible where you're you're, you're in better in a better place to ordain so for everyone i would i would suggest that kind of perspective to look at the sorts of things that are getting in the way with the ordination and to begin to really just apply mindfulness to the point that those things sort of fade away and you're in a better position because mindfulness and, and monasticism of course go hand in hand and the more mindful you are the more your life changes because of your mindfulness the better that life is going to be suited to allow you the opportunity to ordain your life will simplify it might change dra dramatically and eventually you'll be in a position where you're able to ordain sometimes magically sometimes magical things happen but it has to start with mindfulness unless you're in a position where it's very easy to ordain where it's very possible like you live in a buddhist country and there's a monastery near you or a monastery available to you where they're willing to ordain you immediately then okay you can do it first and then take up the practice of mindfulness as a monastic it's much more likely for most people to do it the other way around and to be really ready to be a good monastic before you actually ordain How can I increase my level of dopamine by practicing meditation? What kind of meditation can replace low-level dopamine? Thank God. You want me to recommend a drug addiction? How can I increase my level of dopamine? Meaning, how can I... How? What sort of meditation can be used as a drug addiction? That's basically what you're asking replace low-level dopamine um so that's a different question right increasing your level of dopamine is just a drug addiction that's a really bad idea um what but as for meditation replacing doesn't precisely it can't precisely replace dopamine but it can lower your dopamine on these drugs dopamine is a drug it's a brain chemical and it's a drug and it becomes addictive that's how addiction works and not just dopamine there's other chemicals as well but dopamine's a big one learn about dopamine it's a, it's a part of the addiction cycle the more you get the more you need and the more unsatisfied you are because of how the receptors work in the brain it's harder for them to be satisfied they require more dopamine each time so mindfulness yeah mindfulness is kind of like withdrawal you have to go through withdrawal so it'll be quite unpleasant for someone who's addicted to anything which is why meditation is quite unpleasant for most people in the beginning not because there's anything wrong with mindfulness but that's the nature of of withdrawal not getting what you want until you can learn to let go of wanting
I see that saying I am envious kind of gives power to the emotion, while eliminating the label and just looking at it seems to be relieving. Why is that, and why would be recommended to use labeling? Um, there, it's possible that in the beginning, anyway, saying I am envious would reinforce your sense of self, which is why we just say envy or envious. We try and not emphasize the I am. In Pali, you get away with that because the word, because it's common to just say envious in such a way that it means I am envious. You don't have to add three words. It doesn't take three words to say I am envious. Um, that's not even quite fair because they still use like tito omhi, which means I am stood, literally. Om amhi is I am, but it's still no, no, because there's no I involved there. It's not a hung. You don't add the word I. It's more like am envious without the I because it's not required and because you don't want to emphasize the self. That being said, it's much more likely that what you're experiencing is the um, lack of ability to control. We have expectations that the noting is somehow going to magically free us from these experiences when in fact focusing on them can often make them clearer. That's kind of the point. The point is to really experience them. And so what you're likely experiencing is the stress and the suffering involved with having to face these ugly uh, emotions, these ugly uh, conceit and, and, and attachments to self and so on. They're ugly, and having to face them is not comfortable. It's much more comfortable, as you say, relieving to just not do anything or just to look at it. But that's not nearly as powerful it doesn't force you to taste and that's what you're talking about you're talking about the fact that you really have to taste it, it doesn't give power to it it just makes it more tasty or more more tasteable no, it makes it more strong more po pugnant po poignant no more pugnant <laughs> it, it enhances the taste of it so you get to really taste it and then you say oh yes that's what this tastes like that's important. It's important that you know what envy tastes like. That's why we know it. That's the whole point. It's uncomfortable. We would rather, much rather be able to be comfortable. Comfort isn't going to free you from suffering. Comfort is sticking in the mud and saying, I like the mud. As you slowly sink into the quicksand. It's like a tar pit, you know, those tar pits where the dinosaurs got stuck and just died. Bante, we've crossed the hour and asked all the questions in the top tier. Okay, thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Chris and Jim, for your help and whoever else was here helping. Everyone find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Have a good week. Sadhu. Sadhu.